Easter greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Le Chevalier and I'm the Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. Every quarter we offer for students and faculty at the University of Chicago and in the region, a non-credit course that helps provide an introduction to different aspects of the Catholic intellectual tradition. This spring, we are making this available as a webinar lecture series to the wider public. And welcome to our second installation of this series. This series is co-sponsored by the Collegium Institute at UPenn, the Nova Forum at USC, the St. Benedict Institute at Hope College, the Beatrice Institute in Pittsburgh, the Harvard Catholic Center, and Calvert House Catholic Center. I'm grateful to all of our co-sponsors and welcome their students who are joining us tonight. If you want to support our mission to help make the Catholic intellectual tradition a living dialogue partner at the university and across the nation, you can do so by visiting our website at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Now I hand it over to Rob Porval, a recent PhD graduate from the University of Chicago who has helped design this series. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Michael. Once again, this series is entitled uh, Reason and Wisdom and Medieval Christian Thought. It's meant to provide gateway introductions into the riches of medieval thought, but is also especially to highlight the tension that we see persistent in, in the Middle Ages between contemplative and dialectical ways of seeking the face of God. Uh, next week, we'll have our presentation on Thomas Aquinas, and upcoming presentations will include Hildegard of Bingen, Bernard of Clairvaux, Peter of Abelard, Julian of Norwich, Nicholas of Cusa, and Bernard McGinn has agreed to come back and give us another presentation on Meister Eckhart. Uh, at, at the end of this, we'll be hosting a, a Q&A session, which I will moderate. If you'd like to ask a question, you can at any time using the function at the bottom of your screen, the Q&A function. Uh, the priority will go to student questions, and, uh, and, uh, uh, but please ask those at any time. Let me now introduce uh, Professor Aaron Canty, who's our speaker tonight. Professor Aaron Canty teaches at Religious Studies, Theology, and Philosophy at St. Xavier University, where he specializes in scholastic theologies of the Trinity, uh, Christology, and eschatology. Professor Canty is a regular con contributor to Lumen Christi programming, and we're delighted to have him here tonight. Uh, Professor Canty, would you like to turn on your screen and unmute yourself, and I'll hand the floor over to you. Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm grateful to the Lumen Christi Institute for inviting me to say a little bit about Anselm of Canterbury and rationality of faith. So this talk will be divided into two parts. The first part, just as uh, Professor McGinn did last week, provides some historical background to a very tumultuous 11th century that uh, involved the Norman conquest, uh, Gregorian reform, and so forth, and I'll say a little bit about that. And then the second part of the talk will have, um, it'll deal with rationality and faith in three ways. First of all, rationality and faith with respect to God's qualities and God's self-expression and God's love, um, somewhat influenced by Augustine and also Boethius. Secondly, God, um, rationality and faith with respect to God's existence, and that will follow the arguments in chapters two and three of the Proslogion. And then finally, rationality, rationality and faith with respect to God's salvation for humanity. And that will focus on the second book of Cordaeus Homo. Okay, so the first part, I just want to say a little bit about Augustine's, um, I mean, Augustine's Anselm's 
historical background. So sometimes in bibliographies, you'll see that he's known as Anselm of Asta and sometimes Anselm of Beck. And that has to do with the fact that um, Anselm was born in the Burgundian town of Asta in the Middle Ages um, in 1033 or thereabouts. And he, when he became a, a monk at the monastery in Beck for about 30 years of his life between roughly 1060 and uh, about 1093, um, that's another reason why sometimes he's known as Anselm of Beck because he spent so much time as a monastery in that, uh, as a monk in that monastery. Much of what we know comes through a friend of his and Emanuensis, a scribe, a admiral of Canterbury, who took down many of his writings um, that he gave kind of spontaneously to monks, sometimes in England and sometimes in France. Um, but he also wrote a, a life, and that's why we know, uh, that's how we know a, a number of things about Anselm's life. We know that he had noble lineage on both his mother's and father's side that he did want to become a monk at a young age, but he was denied entry because of um, his father's objections to that um, vocation. And after his mother died, he left home and he was attracted to Lanfranc of Beck, who was a very important philosopher and theologian in the 11th century, uh, very involved in, the, in teaching, but also involved in uh, theological controversies at that time, especially regarding the Eucharist and Berengar of Tours and so forth. And Anselm became a monk in 1060, uh, largely through the influence of Lanfranc. He was elected prior in 1063 and later an abbot in 1078. After Lanfranc himself left the monastery at Bank, uh, at Bank, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And after he died, there was some debate about who should succeed him and eventually Anselm succeeded him as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. But Anselm had a lot of problems. Uh, first of all, it started with William Rufus II of England because there were efforts on the side of the church to in, implement the Gregorian reform, which had a lot to do with resisting efforts of kings and emperors um, from the church's perspective, interfering in ecclesiastical affairs. And because of that, he was exiled in 1097, from 1097 to 1100. And during that time, he lived in Rome. He attended uh, the Council of Bari, at which time he defended the filioque, um, the teaching that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and also the Eucharistic use of unleavened bread um, in debates with uh, Eastern Orthodox bishops. He returned to England in 1100 after the death of William Rufus, and there was a, a new king, Henry Beauclerc I. And at first, the relationship seemed to, to, to be promising. Anselm had a desire to establish the Gregorian reform in England. And he, when he traveled to Rome in 1103, uh, Henry tried to take some, church, some of the church properties, especially in the region of Canterbury, and then during 1105 and 1106, Anselm had a kind of self-imposed exile in which he wanted to try to resolve via correspondence the debate that he had with Henry I. Eventually, he was uh, his properties re were restored, the church properties were restored, and Anselm came back to England, and he died in 1109. Um, but one of the things he was able to do was also to resolve a debate between Canterbury and York over primacy within England with respect to ecclesiastical affairs. I mentioned some of these things, the Norman Conquest, Gregorian reform, because often in histories of philosophy and theology, Anselm is 
sometimes portrayed as somebody who was kind of like a kind of isolated philosopher or somebody who just enjoyed reflecting. And he did, he did like uh, times to just contemplate and meditate, but it was always in a monastic context. Many of the things that he wrote were precisely as a result of conversations that he had had with monastic communities. So I want to turn now to Anselm's chief writings. So these go roughly in chronological order, his prayers and meditations, largely from the 11, uh, early 1070s, but even through the 1080s, they were composed over a, a, about two decades, roughly. The famous monologian, which comes from about 1076, proslogian, 1077, 1078. And then in the 1090s, the De Incarnazione Verbi, which actually has a lot to do with Trinitarian theology, the Cordeus Homo, which we'll be talking about from roughly 1095 to 1098 on why God became a human being. And then in the 1100s, the, his work on the procession of the Holy Spirit and the De Concordia, which is about free will. These are some of his uh, very famous philosophical and theological writings. One work that had occurred to me to put down that I could have included is a very early work um, on the De, De, De Grammatico, which is not as important really in the history of philosophy and theology, but it's important because it shows Anselm's early interest in logic. And that even from a, a young age, he was very interested in logic and syllogistic kinds of reasoning, which he had picked up from Boethius and Aristotle. So um, I can say a little bit about the medieval reception of Anselm before getting into the, the idea of rationality and faith. The medieval reception of Anselm is fairly complicated. On the one hand, there are the spiritual writings. One, one could classify them as spiritual writings. That is writings taken down by Aadmer, or he had other friends. There's an anonymous compiler, uh, Alexander of Canterbury, who took down some of his talks. And these became very famous um, through the early Franciscans in the 13th century, through Meister Eckhart, Nicholas of Cusa. But then there are the philosophical arguments regarding God's existence and qualities. That became very influential in the early Franciscan school. Thomas Aquinas mentions, mentions them, John Ben Scotus mentions them, and mentions them, and so do um, Nicholas of Lyra, uh, not Nicholas of Lyra, Nicholas of Cusa mentions them as well, too. So you have these spiritual talks that he gave to monks, but you also have these uh, philosophical, theological arguments regarding God's qualities, God's existence. And those became influential as well. So getting to the, the focus of the talk. So the first part of this is on rationality and faith as it pertains to God's existence and then God's self-expression and love. And this is the only lengthy passage that I have um, as part of a slide, just to kind of help you understand what Anselm himself was thinking of when he started writing one of his most famous works. So in the Proslogion, he says regarding this particular work, the Monologion, that one of the, the titles should be considered an example of meditating about the rational basis of faith. And he says in the preface, certain brethren have often and earnestly entreated me to put in writing some thoughts I had offered them in familiar conversation regarding meditation on the being of God and on some other topics connected with this subject under the form of a meditation on these themes. It is in accordance with their wish rather than with my ability that they have prescribed such a form for the writing of this meditation in order that nothing in scripture should be urged on the authority of scripture itself, but that whatever the conclusion of independent investigation should de declare to be true should 
In an unadorned style, with common proofs and with a simple argument, be briefly enforced by the cogency of reason and plainly expounded in the light of truth. And I think this is an important paragraph because, or important uh, passage, because it shows how, based on the prompting of his monastic brothers, he felt compelled to have a string of argumentation that, while flowing from faith, was supposed to be regarding reason alone and not using scriptural arguments. And the use of scriptural proof text, scriptural arguments was very important in theological reasoning up until this period and through this period, of course. And so this was a different kind of meditation. And he was trying to bracket, not in a Kantian or rationalistic way, he was trying to bracket the truths of the faith for the time being with respect to these meditations. So the monologian has a very lengthy chain of reasoning, which deals with God's existence, God's qualities, and then eventually God's self-expression and his love. And I can only succinctly um, describe that chain of reasoning very briefly, because uh, it's, it's long and complicated. But he starts off by saying that something is good through itself or through another. Every finite thing that we experience is good because something else brought it into existence and gave it its goodness. But the supreme being, as he refers to God at the stage, um, or the spirit, he's good in and of himself. And when God creates everything, he has an expression of all these things, a locutio. And this expression of all things also expresses himself. And so this supreme being has an expression of itself, which is itself, because it has to be infinite, just as the supreme being is infinite. The expression is one word, and now all of a sudden you can kind of start seeing where this is going, and is consubstantial with the supreme being, because it's the same thing. And yet the like in Augustinian terms, the, the thinker, the thought, thought, and the act of thinking, or the lover, the beloved, and the act of loving, there are three different things. So the divine being, the supreme being, has this locutio, and the locutio, the expression, comes from the supreme being. And he says, and this is a little strange at first glance, that such a relation is like offspring to a parent, and thus the word begotten is appropriate. And Anselm at this point talks about other ways in the 11th century in which people used the phrase begotten. Uh, talks about how when hair grows from your head, that could be begotten, or when fruit grows from a tree, that could be considered begotten. And he says that that's not really appropriate because the hair, it doesn't, represent, it doesn't symbolize or reflect the person. A, a piece of fruit doesn't really reflect exactly the tree. But in this particular case, the self-expression does reflect everything that that the supreme being is because it express it's the full fullness of the expression of who god is so there is some sense in which the word begotten kind of like a concept um, that something is conceived in our minds so this idea of a, an idea or self-expression being begotten he thinks is appropriate he goes on to say that the begetter and the begotten just as in a human analogy could be referred to as father and son. And then from there, he describes the importance of God's love. So it's not just that there's 
memory, intellect, and will corresponding to the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but that the Supreme Spirit loves itself because it remembers itself and it understands itself. But God couldn't, or the Supreme Spirit couldn't love himself without knowing itself. And so therefore the love proceeds from the mutual love of the one who's the begetter and the one who's begotten. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the analogy here. The consubstantial love is neither unbegotten, because to be unbegotten means to have no source, and the love does have a source. The consubstantial love is not begotten, really, because it doesn't image perfectly either the begetter or the begotten, because it comes from both. So since it's neither unbegotten nor begotten, another word is going to have to be used for it, maybe like proceeds. The love proceeds from the Father. And the son. So it images perfectly neither the father nor the son. And so the love, because it comes from them both, is neither unbegotten nor begotten. The love is the substance of the father and the substance of the son, which is spirit. And the procession is from both. And it's analogous to breathing, he says, because it comes from but isn't completely separated from the source. So the love has a source, the father. And the sun as the source, um, it comes from them, but it's not exactly the same as the begetter or the begotten, even though it is consubstantial with the supreme being. So um, this is a you know, very lengthy chain of reasoning to meditate on how just as human beings have memory, intellect, and will, God in some analogous way, must have memory, intellect, and will. God remembers himself in an Augustinian sense, knows himself, loves himself. And because of that, it suggests that God is triune in some way. And all throughout this, he uses no scriptural arguments. So turning from how Anselm uses faith with respect to um, God's qualities, expression, and love, I want to turn now to probably one of the more famous passages in Anselm's corpus, chapters two and three of the Proslogion, where Anselm talks about reason and God's existence. In the preface to the Proslogion, he talks about how he thinks of this work as, even, in, even as a title, faith-seeking understanding. Very famous passage from Anselm, maybe one of the most famous um, phrases from, a, from Anselm. In the preface, he expresses a certain amount of dissatisfaction with the lengthy chain of reasoning that he had applied in the monologian. And he says that he's looking for a single argument instead of a series of many arguments, showing that God exists and is the supreme good. And much of this is a prayer. And I think one thing that's sometimes lost in certainly histories of philosophy, but even commentaries, even close commentaries of the proslogian is that the whole context is a prayer to God and, and sometimes a kind of inner um, dialogue with himself. So the whole thing really is a prayer. And so he says early on, if we think about God as that in which nothing greater can be thought, he goes on to try to apply a, a rational process by which he can um, think about to what, what, what that really means. And so he has this, it's very difficult. You have to kind of um, parse these very closely. He says, if that than which nothing greater can be thought were only in the understanding, then one could think something greater than that than which nothing greater can be thought. In other words, 
if you thought about God as existing only in your mind, then you wouldn't really be thinking about that being in which none greater could be conceived. Because if, if God existed only in the mind or the concept of God existed only in the mind, you could think of something greater. So he's really thinking here about the, like the limits of thought here. In chapter three, he says, if that than which a greater cannot be thought could be thought not to exist, in other words, if you could think about God as not existing, then that than which a greater cannot be thought would not be that than which a greater cannot be thought. In other words, God would not be God. If you can think about God as not existing, then you're not really thinking about God as ex existing because existence is a property of perfection for Anselm, in which case you really couldn't be thinking about God as not existing. From there, he goes on to talk about different qualities. He starts talking about God as the supreme good from which every good receives its goodness. He says other qualities can be inferred. Justice, for example, truthfulness, blessedness, omnipotence, mercy, impassibility. Anselm says, and what, what are the criteria for determining which qualities God has? Those that are better to have than not to have, he says. And then he says, those who enjoy the supreme good will enjoy created goods. This is, I mentioned the last three chapters of the Proslogion because I've seen a number of places, both histories of philosophy, but also commentaries on the Proslogion. I've seen commentaries where the, the, the commentators may say something like, this is kind of irrelevant to these um, eschatological reflections about what the afterlife will be like, is kind of irrelevant to the overall aim of the argument, which is just proving God's existence. But I think it's more than that for Anselm. I think he's mo it's more than just proving God's existence. It's also proving that God is good and has all of these qualities and that those who love God above all things will experience not only created goods, which human beings will join the afterlife, but ultimately the supreme good, which is the source of all those goods. So there's much more that one could say, especially when one talks about the other qualities that can be inferred. He has a lengthy chain of reasoning regarding how to determine the order of those qualities. But I think the, the important thing to, to associate with the proslog in really chapters two and three, which again, were also very important in the history of medieval thought as well. Uh, most of the medieval scholastic theology did not focus on a whole lot of texts other than um, chapters two and three. Although interestingly, some of the comments at the, at the very end regarding eschatological experiences, the saints and the damned, um, that's something that comes up, especially in early Franciscan theology, but that's, that's for another talk. So having talked about rationality and faith with respect to God's existence, let me say a little bit about uh, reason and soteriology. So as I mentioned, Cordeus Homo, the, the work about why God became a human being, that, was, that came in towards the end of his life in the 1090s, and he divides it into two sections. The first section refutes unbelievers' objections that Christian faith is incompatible with reason. Um, there were a number of people who were trying to make Christian faith more rational. There's a famous uh, theologian, Rosalind. Um, there were also some scholars think that Ansel may have had in mind Jewish, um, Jewish objections to the concept of incarnation and certainly the idea that God's son had to die on a cross for salvation. Um, that may be the case. He, he clearly says that he does have in mind obje people's objections to the Christian faith as being irrational. Book two, which is what I want to focus on for tonight, is a work in which he talks about how he wants to prove by reason that no one can be saved without Christ. 
And there's a chain of reasoning here, which I'll have to summarize fairly briefly. But first of all, he talks about how human beings were created as just in order to be happy in enjoying God. And they were supposed to be rational in order to be able to distinguish between good and evil and between greater goods and lesser goods. So in order to be happy, there has to be an ability to make these distinctions. He says humans would have been eternally unhappy if they had persevered. They would have been eternally happy if they had persevered in justice. And they will be eternally happy if they continue in injustice because they have the freedom to choose between lesser and greater goods or between good and evil. God did not create humanity in vain, Anselm says, and he will bring human nature to completion even though no sinner can make satisfaction for sin. And so satisfaction here is rendering to God what is due. Once humanity failed to give God what was his due, there was no way then to make satisfaction at that point. Only a God-man can make satisfaction because only a God-man can perform human actions with infinite dignity. Only God can make satisfaction, but it is fitting for humanity to make it since the one who lost justice should restore it. So there's a kind of fitting this argument. If, if it's human beings who made the mistake, it's human beings who should make up for it. But since they can't perform an infinite action or perform an action with infinite dignity, it takes somebody who is both human and divine simultaneously to make this satisfaction. So that's why in Christ, God makes satisfaction in a human nature and therefore must be divine and human simultaneously. So could God have forgiven sins in some other way? Sure, God could have, you know, given a kind of blanket forgiveness. But the problem there was there people still would have been unjust intrinsically because they wouldn't have been giving God what is God's due. So Anselm does think about other possible kinds of soteriological frameworks, but they, they wouldn't be intrinsically just and they really wouldn't restore um, humanity to its original justice that it had. And so he's very influenced by Augustine here with respect to concept of original sin. Um, there's no sense in Anselm or very little sense that, that original sin is communicated through procreation. He tends to emphasize original sin as mere deprivation of original justice, um, which Augustine does have this idea of transmission that he wonders about how, the, how original sin is transmitted. But Anselm kind of de-emphasizes that aspect of original sin and emphasizes the original justice part of it, how original sin is a deprivation of the original righteousness that human beings first had. So in order to restore that, there had to be this act of satisfaction and only somebody who is God and human simultaneously can perform that, that action. Okay, so as far as uh, uh, concluding, what can we say about Anselm and his understanding of rationality and faith? I think it's important that to realize that Anselm's engaging in meditations and prayer, that's really what he tends to be doing here. A lot of his works are dialogues or their prayers. And so while there's the bracketing of faith and revelation, it's not, to it's not meant to exaggerate the role of reason. The purpose of it is to help fellow Christians understand better what they already believe by faith. And one can see, especially if one reads some of the works of Anselm's friends, Aadmer and Alexander, he has a work on the De Beatitudine, uh, the Dicta Anselmi, um, a later work, De Similitudinibus, you get these kinds of redactions of Anselm's sermons 
talks to fellow monks. And you definitely get this idea of a kind of exhortation to reflect and even joyfully reflect on the truths of the faith. So while reason cannot dis demonstrate truths of the faith, it can show at least that the truths of faith cannot be disproved by reason, which is an important principle, for example, in Thomas Aquinas. Without faith, any attempt to demonstrate the incompatible of incompatibility of reason with revealed truths would make no sense, nor would the apologetic and hortatory purposes with which Anselm wrote. And that's another important part of this, which is that he's often trying to exhort people to be uh, to have better faith, to be better people. And another aspect of this, about this is the being joyful about this, that sometimes just meditating on the truths of the faith can be joyful. It's not necessarily an exercise in pure reason, but Christians, as he says, may be gladdened by understanding and meditating on those things which they believe. Anselm enjoyed applying reason to the truths of faith, not to verify them, but in order to understand them better and to see their harmonious beauty and order which is something I couldn't really summarize um, at the moment, but um, just focusing on these three topics. But if you look at the wider Anselmian corpus, you definitely see this idea of trying to see the, um, the relationship among the divinely revealed truths. And it's this joy and faith that leads to wisdom and greater understanding. In fact, in some of the eschatological works of Anselm recorded by his uh, friends, he talks about how the wisdom that people will experience in the afterlife will be a direct participation in God's own self-knowledge, self-understanding, and that kind of wisdom where, we'll, where human beings will see the causes of all of the good things that they've experienced both in this life and in the life to come is that's the goal of um, Christian theology and meditation, which one, going back to the proslogion, is exactly how the proslogion ends. It ends with a reflection on what the saints will experience in the afterlife. So thank you very much for um, uh, sharing your time with me this evening. And I hope that was a helpful introduction to some of Anselm's thoughts. Very good. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Canty. They're very, very uh, substantive and very interesting. I am I, very appreciative of the, the bringing in the tumultuous background into, into uh, uh, to play. That's something that we very easily forget. Uh, we have a couple questions to start off with. Uh, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in Anselm's influence, as you started to make uh, reference to in terms of his medieval readership and his medieval reception. Uh, particularly, you mentioned, uh, well, a couple, a couple folks, uh, but uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Mark Plass, I hope I get the name right, asks, does Bernard of Clairvaux make use of Anselm, it's, I think particularly in the question of love, in either his... Bernard's sermons on the Song of Songs, or in on his work, his famous work on loving God. That's a great question. And so, off the top of my head, I don't recall a direct influence. Off the top of my head, <clears throat> around that time, though, if I can make another uh, allusion to another author from around that period, Hugh of Saint Victor, there are times in Hugh of Saint Victor where, while he doesn't really engage with Anselm on a sustained level he will use Anselmian kinds of phrases, like even not so much God is that being than which none greater can be conceived, but he'll talk about like that joy in heaven, which none greater can be conceived. Mm -hmm. So he, so Hugh of St. Victor does use occasionally Anselmian types of argumentation, but at least in my reading, I haven't come across a whole lot of immediate influence 
until the early 13th century. And in the early, early 13th century, especially starting among early Franciscans, um, Anselm is very influential. But in the 12th century, I think there were more competing schools of thought and expression. And keep in mind, in the context of early scholasticism, um, Anselm was a monastic writer. Um, and so even though he does have this, uh, what from a later perspective, modern perspective is a philosophical way of thinking about God and God's qualities and so forth, it wasn't immediately apparent you know, to people that maybe Anselm was the best choice, especially after, mm -hmm. after all these collections of sentences in the, yeah. 11, uh, yeah, in the 1140s, 1150s, especially Peter Lombard. But that seemed to be the way to go in the middle of the, in the middle of the 12th century is having collections of sentences. And there's so many ways in which um, the 12th century is about collecting, you know, canon law, glossa ordinaria, um, compilations of sentences. And Anselm doesn't figure that prominently in those texts that I'm familiar with. Yeah, his chains of reasoning are difficult to collect, I think, to edit out, yeah. I think so, and especially because there, there's an issue about who's really an authority. You know, that, that becomes important in the 13th century. I mean, you read um, the first question of the Summa and Thomas Aquinas, uh, he doesn't really seem to think of Anselm or 12th century theologians as really all that authoritative. But other theologians like Bonaventure, he has no problem thinking about holy people, even if they're not doctors of the church, hmm. as, as authorities. For example, um, the, the work of Hugh, the postilla of Hugh of saint -Cher, um, the commentary on scripture from the 1230s and 1240s put together by the Dominicans, mm -hmm. has a lot of 12th century sources. Mm -hmm. Anselm, Bernard of Clairvaux, the Victorines. Um, it has a lot of 12th century sources. Mm -hmm. You read Thomas Aquinas's commentaries on scripture, not so much. Mm -hmm. Bonaventure, in his commentaries, he'll have, you know, Giles of Assisi down the hall. Um, Thomas Aquinas, not so much. So I think there are debates in the Middle Ages about what who's considered an authority. Hmm. Now, that's way beyond the initial question, though, so I apologize for that. Well, we know, but it, it'll play into our, our discussion of reason and faith as well. Yes. Um, you, you started to talk about Thomas Aquinas, and we mm -hmm. do have another question about uh, the relationship of Anselm and, and Aquinas. Dominicus Macus, uh, if I'm saying the name right, asks, what is the relation between St. Anselm's proslogion and other works? And for example, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's compendium of natural theology or, or uh, you know, other things of Thomas perhaps. Yeah, um, I think that one of the main differences in Thomas Aquinas's works is that in general, they are for, you know, beginners, I, I'm thinking about what he says at the, in the, at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, but these are people who, these are Dominican friars who have a pretty good education already, who, who, are, who have a, a pretty good basis of the arts um, curriculum at the University of Paris or in the Dominican Studia. These are people who, who at the time would have been pretty well educated, even if Thomas says that they're beginners. So, the compendium, for example, has as an organizing structure, faith, hope, and charity. You know, that's, that's the kind of organizing structure of, of the compendium. Or you think about uh, the Summa Theologiae, where you have as an organizing um, structure, this kind of exitus reditus pattern that you have God, things coming from God and return, return to God, which in some ways 
not exactly, follows Peter Lombard's sentences, although with a different, uh, a different structure. You know, Anselm, again, I think he's thinking about conversations with his fellow monks. I think he's thinking about helping them draw closer to God in this monastic context. Does he have true objections from theologians in mind? Absolutely. Does he have true objections from Jews and maybe Muslims in mind? Absolutely. But I think it's not really for preachers who are going to be out going out teaching on the streets and forgiving sins, which is what the Dominicans were for. So I think there's a very different spirit to the theological writings of Thomas Aquinas from, from Anselm, even though both involve a lot of reason and a lot of faith. Yes, um, no, that's very helpful. We have another question on, on, uh, on Anselm and his, his medieval reception, especially on the Augustinian notion of will. Uh, Andrew Summerson asks, could you speak to how Anselm develops the concept of will, voluntas, I think, based on Augustine for later medieval thinkers? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about, about that at the moment. I wish I had more to say. I'm thinking right now about De Concordia and free will and his, his discussion about free will. But as far as development, I don't have a whole lot to say at the moment. So I apologize for that. I, I was just reflecting on, on that. And there you can see some uh, influence of Augustine's De Trinitate in, the, yes. in, in Anselm's. Yes. But of course, for Augustine, the, the, trin, the will figures into the Trinity. Yes. And, mm -hmm. Right. But Anselm doesn't seem to be bringing that into his Trinitarian. Is that, is that, is that correct? Except insofar as he refers in the monologue into this, this thing that proceeds from the begetter and the begotten as love. So wow. that's how the will is involved there. Okay. That's not so much. That's not so different from Augustine, except Anselm is bracketing all the scriptural arguments. But as far as development, and I know there is a development regarding uh, the will, and especially how it becomes used in early Franciscan theology, and then in, in Aquinas and Scotus. But Anselm's role in developing that, I'm not really quite sure. It's a great question. Yeah, yeah, something something to look into. I think mm -hmm. um, you've you've already mentioned the. Uh, the, the, the council at which Anselm uh, dealt with the filioque. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question from Michael Stilwell uh, asking about, about uh, Anselm's larger role in the, in the, in the, uh, the Great Schism. Uh, he, Michael, Micah asks, uh, was Anselm particularly involved, involved with this, this schism in any way? Did he have co any contributions either in writing or otherwise to the Catholic Church during this time? Um, yeah, uh, he... he um, he was from Italy, but yes. what, what was his role in, in some of those, those uh, that tumult? Yeah, it, that's a good question. There's still, as far as I know, debate about who actually participated at this Council of Bari. You know, mm. some of the older secondary literature suggests that this was, you know, Catholic Orthodox dialogue. Um, mm. But some recent, more recent literature I've seen suggests that some of these Eastern Orthodox bishops may really have been kind of already somewhat Latinized. And so they may have been Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, but they, have, they may have had a significant amount of sympathy or training in Western theology. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't made like truly a conversation between, you know, like Rome and Constantinople. It was a, a conversation between Italian Catholic bishops and Italian 
Orthodox bishops, but it might not have been as much of a, a rapprochement as we, we might think. What we do know is that um, the Pope asked Anselm to uh, kind of put together some, some reflections on this, and that's where these, these writings came from. During that first exile, since he lived in Rome for three years, he became kind of a confidant of uh, the Pope mm -hmm. during that time, and mm -hmm. so he was kind of like a theological advisor. But, there, but there, there were others. It's not as though Anselm was the only one. But certainly um, on those particular issues regarding um, the procession of the Holy Spirit, but also the, uh, the Eucharist, the Eucharistic bread. And he, actually, he has a couple more works, too, um, some like letters where he writes to other bishops and, uh, and an abbot, I think, about the diversity of rituals in the Catholic Church. And there's, there's an abbot who expresses some concern that well, how, how can we be the, the, the same church if we have a diversity of rituals? And Anselm says, you know, it's okay. It's okay if we have a diversity of rituals as long as we're believing the same thing and as long as these practices come from the fathers. And um, so he kind of he has this kind of brief letter saying that a diversity of uh, external rituals is totally fine since the substance of the faith is the same. So um, could, you know, could that be used for today? Perhaps, but I'm, because I don't know this, I don't know the truth of the matter regarding the participants of the Council of Bari, I'm not really quite sure exactly how much Anselm might be a, a model for ecumenical dialogue. It's a great question, though. I'd like to learn more about the Council of Bari. Hmm. And that's a very interesting comment you were making before about uh, liturg liturgical diversity, especially in light of his church reform activities. Yes, where, that's right. Uh, yeah, would took up most of his career in some ways. Yes, and so it's easy to think about him as a theologian when you read his works, but it's it's easy to forget also how he was bound up with politics. Yeah. For as long as he was Archbishop of Canterbury, he was bound up for better or for worse with politics because that was one of the dominating uh, intellectual trends of the 11th century, that is the investiture controversy. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, turning a corner, uh, there's some questions that we're receiving on, on the atonement in uh, okay. Curtis Homo. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian uh, German asks, could you comment on Anselm's influence on competing theories of the atonement at his time and, and afterward? Yes. Um, sometimes in the secondary literature, you get this kind of bifurcation between an Anselmian model and an Abelardian model, whereby Anselm is all about satisfaction and atonement and Abelard is all about exemplar yep. is, you know, you, you see a little bit of that in Thomas Aquinas, actually in the compendium, uh, Thomas talks about how, well, Jesus is, he's both. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you need satisfaction. Um, there could be other models of forgiveness, but then they wouldn't, they would, the problem with there would be, you would have an unjust humanity, which wouldn't be fitting wouldn't be fitting for human beings to be left unjust. For example, if they were unjust, what would happen when they died and had a reunification of their souls and bodies? Hmm. They couldn't have immortality or impassibility. They couldn't have um, what were called the dotes corporis in the 13th century, the gifts of glorified bodies. Um, so if, if you had a situation in which you had forgiveness, but perpetual injustice, they couldn't have beatific vision, they couldn't have beatific enjoyment, and then they couldn't have the bodily goods that would go along with that. So you could envision, Thomas does, Thomas Aquinas envisions other soteriological models, but they're all unfitting in some way. And so from that point of view, I think Anselm does provide um, an art articulate concept of satisfaction theory. Um, Aquinas seems to think that 
that that by itself maybe not be may not be sufficient because Jesus also precisely insofar as he is incarnate suffers dies his earthly ministry all that is a, is a model all that is an example for us as well so i don't know though especially if you have this bifurcated anselmian abelardian model mm-hmm. and if you think of them as concrete and kind of in isolation i'm not sure if anselm would have recognized that i'm not sure if anselm would have thought oh yeah my soteriological model really couldn't care less about Jesus as an example. Hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't get that anywhere. I mean, again, he's trying to come up with a, responses to objections from unbelievers about why the incarnation is unfitting. Hmm. And so Jesus as model may not be the most persuasive, you know, in that context. Oh, Jesus. So what would be the argument against atheists, Jews, and Muslims there? Jesus was a model of love because he suffered and died. Well, especially if you think about the persecution of Jews in the Rhineland during the, you know, the 1090s, maybe they were good examples of love, you know, because they died for their faith. You know, so, you know, maybe in the context of the literary structure of what Anselm's trying to do in Credeus Homo, an exemplarity type of argument would not have really accomplished what he was seeking to do. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I just offer that as speculation. Well, that's no, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, especially because, yeah, that's right. He's not necessarily opposed to it. He could have worked it in, but it just didn't, it didn't fit within his necessary reasons, right? The exactly. Yeah. Right. And what that's, he's, that's what, nice. yeah, exactly. What he states at the outset, I can see why an exemplarity model doesn't make a whole lot of sense based on what he says is his stated goals are. No, that's that. Yeah, I like that. It, yeah, good. No, there's there's a couple like I think Hugh, if I remember correctly, like uh, uh, compounds these different models of atonement, right? It's yes. this, but it's also this, but it's also this. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, we have a couple questions. Go, uh, I think hearkening back to this idea of, of faith and reason, but also authority. Uh, mm-hmm. Tim, Timothy, Timothy Kelleher. Uh, uh, asks, uh, this question arising in the 13th century about uh, uh, who is an authority seems different from that uh, of the ad- development of authority arising in the East. Uh, could you maybe make a comment about how the authority uh, is, is conceived in the Eastern, uh, in Eastern thought versus, versus Anselm and, and the scholastic development? That, that's a complicated question. <laughs> Authorities at which level? So just at the level of theology in the West, I mean, when I think about, I mentioned earlier about how the 12th century is a century in which there's, there are many projects of consolidation and collection. Just, you know, th- this is drawing on the Carolingian example where you know, a lot of the Carolingian authors are trying to take the excerpts of the best of the fathers. Hmm. East and West, to the, to the extent that they're available. So often the Carolingian authors are derided as being unoriginal and mm-hmm. you know, speculatively um, not very profound, but they did a great service insofar as they pulled together and called a lot of the, you know, most, some of the most famous extracts from some of these authors. So there's some sense in which, at least in the West, the the decision about who is an authority comes from these 
uh, you know, bishops, abbots, sometimes court-associated theologians, not all of whom agree with the church. I mean, there, in the Carolingian uh, period, there's a, there's a debate between um, some of the Carolingian theologians and what which of the councils of the East are considered ecumenical or not. So at least in the Western tradition, there's some sense in which they contribute to the, you know, who's an authority. But a lot of these authors, Bede, Hamo, Vauxhair, um, Lanfranc participates in this, even though he's a little bit later. I mean, they're, they're fairly self-effacing. They, they, they're trying to be self-effacing in many ways. Even in the Glossa Ordinaria, very rarely that I've come across, I haven't read the whole thing, very rarely are they citing Bede or Hamo Vauxhair as opposed to Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory, John Chrysostom. I mean, usually those five have a lot more, they're mentioned by name much more frequently. Sure, Bede is mentioned every now and then, Hamo is mentioned every now and then, but for the most part, it's not. What's also interesting regarding the question about authority, and I will come back to the question about the East, is if you look, for example, at authorities in Peter Lombard, it's fairly similar as far as who's considered an authority. He has a wider variety of people. Um, if you look, for example, at um, John Duns Scotus, so I, I want to jump ahead a little bit and then move back. With John Duns Scotus, there is very little. I mean, a lot of it, you know, is Augustine, you know, Scripture, Augustine, John of Damascus, um, but there's a there's a kind of contraction of of authorities. If you look at Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas has a lot in the Catena. It's something like 22 Latin authorities and about 67 Greek authorities. Uh, I think that's something that people don't really realize. I mean, I think a lot of times people think Thomas Aquinas, Western, but he has a lot of Eastern influence, especially John of Damascus. You know, I know sometimes Thomas Aquinas is criticized for not knowing Maximus, but Thomas Aquinas did have access to the acts of the Third Council of Constantinople, which not all theologians used in the 13th century. So he was aware of the um, two wills, two energies, um, development in post-Chalcedonian theology, but it's something that not a lot of people really had access to. You know, why Thomas Aquinas had access to all these Greek authors, made mention of them, and other people who were writing at the same time did not. You know, that, um, that's for experts on Aquinas. Um, in Eastern theology, I don't really know enough to know about who's considered an authority other than the people I've read. For example, Gregory Palamas. I mean, if you read Palamas, I mean, you get, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, Maximus the Confessor, John of Damascus. Uh, I think Simeon the New Theologian comes in. So, I mean, th these, these are authorities for them. It's, it's hard to see how that is mutually exclusive at that moment, uh, other than the fact that because of the schism and because of cultural factors, um, especially language barriers, not all, you know, and not, not all these works that were written in Greek um, or spoken in Greek were translated into Latin at that time. But um, some people really cared a lot. I mean, Thomas Aquinas cared, but he didn't necessarily have access to um, the good translations of those, of those works if he had any access to them at all, like Maximus. So I don't know enough about the Eastern concept of authority at that time. And it is, I know, even though Gregory Palamas's theology is, was kind of canonized in some sense by the Orthodox churches, nonetheless, it's not quite clear to me whether Gregory Palamas's concept of authority hmm. was 
was canonized by the Orthodox churches or whether and whether that's mutually exclusive or not. But I'll let, I'll let an expert on Palamas. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. As, as you were uh, saying in your presentation, he's, Anselm is so distinctive because he strips away a lot of these citations yes. um, from scripture, from authority, and seems to be purely reasonable or purely, uh, purely rational. Um, mm -hmm. And yet it doesn't quite seem like it's the rationality that we later on come to be find articulated in, in the European philosophical tradition. Hans Gleichner, right. if I'm saying the name correctly, asks about this question and the Anselm and the Enlightenment. He asks, can you compare Anselm's approach to faith and reason to that of the Enlightenment approach, I think, to, to faith and reason, especially to perhaps reason? Sure, yeah. I mean, in the monologue in where he talks about how he's going to use reason alone, I mean, doesn't that sound like Kant? Doesn't it sound like the you know, religion within the boundaries of mere reason, or I mean, it sounds so, so much like Kant. And yet in the enlightenment model, faith is superstition, faith is darkness, intellectual darkness. It's just believing what's manifestly false in many cases, or, you know, at best. So, and from that point of view, that's not what Anselm's project is about. I mean, he's presupposing everything just for methodological purposes, he's bracketing them. So even when he says reason alone, it's not in the sense that faith is erroneous or leading to darkness. No, faith is light and faith is true. It's just that for methodological purposes, depending on the context, it may be good to bracket scriptural citation um, or appeals to revelation and dogma. From that point of view, I'm somewhat reminded of Carl, Karl Rahner, who in a lot of his writings on Christianity, like his introduction to Christianity, he doesn't use a whole lot of scripture. I mean, he's trying to appeal to the subjectivity of modern people, many of whom may be atheists or skeptics, and for whom they would not be, they would not be persuaded by an appeal to revelation. And I think that's more kind of what, Anselm has in mind. I'm not comparing Anselm's theology to Rahner's. I'm saying just as far as methodology, I think there's something more like that going on. I think he's he's in conversation with monks, his, his fellow brothers, to help them come up with their own existential um, lines of questioning, and then also to have answers to those people that they come across to have better arguments, perhaps. So maybe they come across people, I, I'm reminded here of Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles when he talks about how, when you're in dialogue with people or debate, um, you kind of have to work with the presuppositions of the other. If you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in scripture, it's not really gonna help to use tons of scriptural arguments. Or Thomas says, with respect to the Jews, it's not really gonna, it's not really gonna help to use New Testament texts or with respect to Muslims, it's not really gonna to help to use any scriptural text period. Um, or with Gnostics, it's not gonna to help to use Old Testament texts. So you kind of have to work with the presuppositions of the other. And I think Anselm's lines of reasoning from that point of view I think are helpful with that in mind. Hmm. Okay, so that, that's, that's very interesting because I, I was beginning to think, now this was gonna be my follow-up question, that as you pointed out, a lot of his chains of reasoning function as a kind of fittingness argument. Well, it's fitting yes. that this would follow from this. And that doesn't seem to be a kind of Kantian neutral tribunal of reason 
right? right. That's never, that's nowhere and always think something like that. But mm-hmm. are there a kind of reason that's been fostered and cultivated within the monastic thinking, patristic thinking, something like, would you say that's right? That yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. The only thing that's interesting is, you know, Thomas Aquinas uses fitting this arguments, arguments ex conveniencia, he says, yeah. But, you know, then later, you know, from SCOTUS on, you know, and anything that tends towards volunteerism, theologians get a little uncomfortable saying, oh, it makes sense for the ineffable, inscrutable God to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though they, they do use Anselm or engage with Anselm to a certain extent, at least in the 14th century, people become a little bit more uncomfortable with fitting this arguments on the grounds that it may seem to suggest that, like, we can figure out God. Not that, not that anybody, not that Anselm or anybody in the 13th century who's, who's been kind of canonized in some general sense in the tradition um, was thought to have done that. But there was definitely the perception, you see this in Bonaventure. Bonaventure is very concerned about people getting overly rationalistic in the middle of the 13th century, especially the Averroistic um, parts of the arts faculty at the University of Paris. So, so there are questions, concerns about rationalism that are going on. But I don't think Anselm, certainly not Thomas Aquinas, uh, I don't think they're I don't think there are reasons for, for um, they're not participating in that, I would argue. Hmm. Uh, circling back, we just have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, some of the things that you were, you were commenting on, on, on Anselm's action, as well as uh, Paul Moss, uh, mm-hmm. I think have evoked some more curiosity. Uh, sure. Starting with, again, um, uh, uh, his politics and all of his activity. Uh, we had an attendee who asked, as you mentioned, Anselm had some involvement in church politics like and in, in, uh, also involved the primacy of Canterbury in England. Yes. How was he able to be a man of action, moving about in exile and so forth, and also be a theoretical scholar in the way that he was? That's a, that's a question that, we, that has a long, it could have a long answer to it. There's a lot of debate in the secondary literature about what Anselm's true desires were. Hmm. The, the older literature, Benedict, Sister Benedict Award, Richard Southern, um, tend to take Aadmer and Anselm at his word when he says that he really just wanted to be a monk all his life. He wasn't really interested in being an archbishop. He wasn't really interested in politics. He really was interested in being in a cell all his life. There's been more some skeptical secondary literature after that um, that suggested that his kind of rhetorical self-effacing was kind of just a ploy for him actually to maximize the political opportunities at his disposal. I'm not not entirely persuaded by that. And yet things, the way he was in exile, the letters that he wrote to um, King Henry I, that did work out in his favor. Um, So so being humble and, you know, that that actually did turn out to, to work in his favor at some point. Yet I do take him and Aadmer at his word, at their word, <clears throat> namely that he did, he, he seemed, he was like a monk at heart and he really enjoyed the pleasures of contemplation. And that's really what he, um, he had a natural tendency towards. As I mentioned earlier on, the De Grammatica, one of his first works on, which is really, it, it's a misleading title, but it's really about logic. Um, it shows that he was very adept at logic at a, at a young age and that he was adept at contemplation and meditation at a young age. So I think those kind of went together and that's those those aspects are part of his personality and which kind of defined his genius to a certain extent. I think you're pointing to a really, yeah, a really interesting paradox there that we find in some medieval thinkers, especially church reformers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some of the really contemplative folks are also really active at the same time. Bernard is the classic 
sort of yes. paradoxical archetype of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think too about like much later the uh, Im the imitation of Christ and the devotee Moderna, and how you could get the impression that these people just sat in their rooms all day if yeah. you just you like to read their writings, but that's not that's not how they were at all. They were very active people. I mean, yeah. out and about and actually you know lives in the world, but you wouldn't know that necessarily by reading their writings. Uh, going back now to the the Palamas question, mm -hmm. yes. uh, uh, asked. You mentioned earlier how. Anselm, in his eschatological ideas, speaks of a participation of divine wisdom. How does that compare with Paul Moss's idea of participation in the divine energies? Yeah, obviously, any any discussion Pressing you on on Paul Moss here. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, anytime anytime you talk about the essence energies distinction, you know, that's that's an hour long conversation or you just have to summarize it real briefly, like in this particular case. Look, this is a very complicated issue. The I, I think it goes back to Augustine. I think the essence, you know, is not understood in the same way. I think the energeia, the energeia is not understood in the same way. And the, the the English translations of the Latin equivalents of like action and operation just are not the same. They don't carry the same weight. Um, the short answer with respect to Anselm is there's there's no essence energies. Um, it's mostly about participating in God as good, just, you know, in this kind of Neoplatonic sense. I mean, at a logical level, he did know Aristotle, but as far as overall outlook, he was much more Neoplatonic. Hmm. And I think that um, without the essence energies distinction, he didn't have that to work on. So he definitely thought of seeing face to face and so forth. But these are scriptural examples that have a lengthy, you know, weight in the Western tradition. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd just say at, at this, two different kinds of conceptual languages and there would have to be a basis for a much longer conversation. Actually, Thomas Aquinas is, would probably be a better interlocutor for, for Gregory Palamas than, than Anselm, but it's a great question. It's just a, that takes a, that's a long complicated answer. Good. I think that uh, helps segue us to welcoming everyone to join us next week as we actually dig into Thomas Aquinas on ways of um, ways to know God. Um, yes. People can also tune in tomorrow at 4 p.m. for our panel on American contributions to Catholic social thought. Um, but I'd be remiss if I if I didn't end this night by thanking Aaron, um, uh, Professor Canty, for a fantastic and thorough presentation. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us here um, at the Lumen Christi Institute online. Um, and if you enjoy this programming and you want to support our work, bringing the Catholic intellectual tradition to students at the University of Chicago and to students across the nation, um, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Um, thank you all and have a wonderful night. <laughs>